Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate newsletter audio cast. This is volume 11, issues number 40 and 42, and we are going to discuss in episode 40, epigenetics, based on podcast number three with Dr. Randy Jertle. And there are links to the podcast if you missed it and the newsletter on doxmo.com or salisburypediatrics.com. So let's get to it. Humans, like most organisms on Earth, grow and maintain their biological systems through a complex interplay between the environment and their genes. Epigenetics is the study of the ability of environmental signals to silence or activate these genes, thus affecting cellular function and species survival. I was once given an analogy by Dr. Randy Jertle that your genes are like the computer hard drive. They do nothing until the software inputs change activity. The environmental signals like food, chemical stress, and much more are the putative software inputs for us. Good lifestyle inputs have been epidemiologically proven to reduce disease risk. Pregnancy is probably the most critical epigenetic period of human life, where the development of a child is affected by many aspects of our lifestyle. What we do know is that negative epigenetic triggers will have a negative effect on a child's outcome. We need to know what the negative triggers are. Once an egg is fertilized and forms into an embryo, the process of rapid cellular growth and gene expression ramps up over the entire gestational period, there are day-to-day changes based on environmental inputs that will silence or express a gene's function. We call this gene expression patterns, and they are recorded on the DNA as tags or marks as each cell progresses toward its ultimate fate. Let us look at the research that gave us the mechanism behind how this works and looks. The beginning of this new scientific understanding came in the year 2003 from the lab of Randy Jertle a radiation oncologist at Duke University in North Carolina. His pioneering research with the agouti mouse revolutionized how we see human genetic outcomes and changed our belief that we are destined to be the sum of our parents' inherited DNA, genetic determinism. His lab also proved that mothers have some control over their offspring's genetic outcome by identifying the mechanisms related to alterations in gene expression while not altering the DNA itself. His lab conducted an experiment with an agouti mouse. The mouse is predestined, or so we thought, to always produce pups that have a yellow coat color, become obese, and are prone to developing disease and cancer. This elegant experiment offered the mother mouse an altered diet prior to conception and then throughout pregnancy. They gave the mice dietary sources of a specific carbon complex called a methyl group which is naturally found in choline, betaine, folate, and vitamin B12. The natural food sources of these methyl groups are predominantly vegetables like beets and garlic. They chose food sources of methyl groups for the research because Robert Waterland, a postdoctoral fellow in the lab, had a keen interest in nutrition and biology. What they proved was that the dietary addition had the ability to silence a segment of the offspring's genetic code. The silence region coded for the agouti mouse's coat color and predisposition for obesity. The outcome was earth-shattering in the scientific world. The mouse pups were born brown, skinny, and did not care risk for development of diabetes or cancer. Quote, It was a little eerie and a little scary to see how something as subtle as a nutritional change in the pregnant mother rat could have such a dramatic impact on the gene expression of the baby. End quote. Dirtle says, quote, The results showed how 
important epigenetic changes could be, end quote. So let me recap. For the first time in history, we now have the evidence that a nutritional alteration has the ability to alter the disease outcome of a new baby. Healthy food is the lifestyle choice that had a positive effect on the outcome in a mouse model that was supposed to not be possible. Dr. Jertle's group took the research a little farther. They continued the original Goody Mouse experiment, but added a wrinkle. They gave the mothers a ubiquitous plastic chemical called BPA or bisphenol A at the same time as they continued the original experimental design with the food. The outcome was shocking. The offspring reverted back to the original dysfunctional state of yellow coat, obesity, and increased disease risk. These studies proved that for the first time, we are aware that genes could be activated or silenced by environmental signals, including beneficially with food and detrimentally with chemicals. Dr. Jertle goes on to state, Epigenetics is proving we have some responsibility for the integrity of our genome. Before genes predetermined outcomes, now everything we do, everything we eat or smoke can affect our gene expression and that of future generations. Epigenetics induces the concept of free will into our idea of genetics, end quote. Recap, a mother's offspring can have their DNA read or silenced by environmental inputs during pregnancy. The research has been exploding over the last decades, and it is clear that almost any environmental signal could potentially have an effect on our genetic code's interpretation at the cellular level. We have the mechanism now to research effectively in humans how environmental signals alter a gene's function real time. Dr. Jertle's work gives us two pieces of the environmental puzzle, nutrients and toxicants, during the pregnancy phase of growth. What about nurturing or behavioral signals postnatally? Could a behavioral input have an effect? Does an offspring or a young child alter genetic expression after pregnancy and delivery? And to the excellent work of Dr. Moshe Schiff from McGill University in Canada. He has been studying the effects of environmental triggers on the genome for decades, and his group, along with the work of Michael Meany, has proven that the behaviors and traits that we see as newborns and children are dictated in large part by environmental and lifestyle experiences. He has also shown that the DNA can be affected and altered, excuse me, that the DNA can be affected but not altered after conception well into childhood. From his transcript, Dr. Schiff states, so We can't do experiments. We can administer adversity, though, to humans. But God does experiments with humans, and it's called natural disasters. So one of the natural disasters, the hardest natural disaster in a Canadian history, happened in my province in Quebec. It's the ice storm of 1998. We lost our entire electrical grid because of an ice storm when the temperatures were in the dead of winter of Quebec, minus 20 to minus 30. And there were pregnant mothers during that time And my colleague, Susan King, followed the children of these mothers for 15 years. And what happened was that the stress, as it increased, and here we had objective measures of stress, how long you were out of power? Where did you spend your time? Was it with your mother-in-law, in their apartment, or in some posh country home? So all of this added up to social stress scale. And you can ask the question, how did the children look like? And it appears that as stress increases, the children developed more autism. They develop more metabolic diseases, and they develop more autoimmune diseases. That's the end of Dr. Schiff's quote. Epidemiological research from Overkalik, Sweden, and the Dutch Winter Hunger Study 
has also shown that periods of feast and famine during pregnancy can have an effect on the offspring of the mother regardless of other effects and confounders like socioeconomic status that are usually used to debunk data points. That comes to us from Birgen et al. in 2014 and Schultz et al. in 2010. So whether these stressful events happen to a child in utero or after birth, the epigenetic marks causing disease worsened and increased stress excuse me, worsened with increasing stress. Taking it a step further, it is clear from the collective research to date in the field of epigenetics that there are exponential ways to alter gene expression. They are called daily life. The research has identified some that are clearly detrimental and some that are beneficial to the offspring. The trick is to understand what helps and what harms. Dr. Schiff goes on to state, so on the one hand, we have an old genome, right? That's millions of years old. That's fixed. On the other hand, we have a changing world that is talking to our DNA. And this balance probably was selected by many, many millions of years of evolution to provide with us with this amazing, what we call plasticity on the one hand and fixed characters on the other. So we need both. We need the immutable and mutable operating together. And that's the amazing paradox of the challenging life, end quote. So what he is saying is that this epigenetic changeability is evolutionarily protective in an ever-changing environment. However, if our DNA can be read in many different ways depending on the changing world, then why are we falling apart as a species? This question is related in large part to the modern society. The answer is likely related to the fact that humans have altered the environment at such a torrid pace in the last hundred years compared to the previous thousands of years. We are inundated with chemical exposure, increased mental stress, and poor quality food driving the majority of our poor epigenetic signals that our children are receiving and processing. We no longer have the historical stresses of food scarcity, temperature swings in a non-climate controlled environment, and microbial friend exposures of the recent past. In other words, we have a whole new set of lifestyle challenges, and we are not evolving fast enough to combat them. The thrust of the Dr. Jodel podcast was the identification and acknowledgement of a novel mechanism to explain the changes in disease susceptibility that humans have through different environmental signals. We now have to do the heavy lifting in the research space to identify all of the major epigenetic risks for a negative human outcome. However, before the research comes to fruition, we have epidemiological data that likely predicts the epigenetics to be seen in humans over time. To me, to me, here are the likely truisms. First, a whole-based, whole foods-based diet is the path to optimal genetic activity in a human, as this food of reality is how our genes evolve to understand. Second, excessive mental stress and chronic mental stress are counterproductive, leading to problems. Stress avoidance and stress management techniques are very useful for us. Third, Chemicals in all forms are potentially problematical for a fetus. Thus, maternal exposures are route to trouble. We should encourage the complete avoidance of chemicals and drugs during this period. Fourth, a lack of exercise is a very important trigger of a dysfunctional epigenetics. Five, viral infections are net negative prenatally with increased risks for autism and schizophrenia. Six, maintaining a healthy intestinal microbiome pre-pregnancy appears to be very, very important. Okay, section two. A beautiful mind. 
In 2001, Russell Crowe acted as John Nash in the Ron Howard movie, A Beautiful Mind. It is a classic story of love and effort conquering all. For those who do not remember the story, John Nash was a genius, Princeton graduate mathematics student who produced a unique theory of equilibrium in non-cooperative games, which led to major leaps in game theory, economic understanding of complex systems, and much more, including a Nobel Prize in economics. He unfortunately began to suffer from paranoid schizophrenia that derailed his life and his work. At the time, as depicted in the movie, insulin-induced seizures and psychotropic medications were the treatment of choice, which were clearly devastating to the health and vitality of any mammalian system. As the story goes, he was able to eventually get out of the hospitals and resume reasonably normal existence by rejecting the reality of the delusions and delusional thoughts in order to appear normal in the hospital. While living in a non-hospital environment, he found structure and support from his wife and the world of mathematics at Princeton University. The world of beautiful minds for anyone with a mental disorder from anxiety to autism to major depression is not always so supportive, and many do not have the mental fortitude to say no to the complex delusions or choices that are hurting them. We see this problem in clinic often with children struggling to maintain mental health in a profoundly unhealthy home environment, necessitating in many medical minds more use of psychotropics and mind-altering protocols. However, in my mind, as seen so beautifully in the life of John Nash, what people really need is love and support to the best version of themselves, no matter what the mental disability. Stress and fear are the mind killers. We as complex society of individuals must find ways to increase our collective support of those struggling with mental health, lest they continue to fall for addiction or other self-medicating ways of dealing with dysfunction. Recently, we are seeing a large increase in high-quality research looking into the use of psychoactive medications and molecules that can help dissociate mind from trauma or cycled thought. This pathway may be at, at last a moment for many sufferers or of mood disorder and diseases of the mind. Whether a mental issue is reactionary as with post-traumatic stress disorder or others like schizophrenia, there seems to be a plausible line of change to the etiology of the dysfunction called cycled thought. When a human cycles negatively on a thought, it gains power over them and changes behavior. Think of the accomplished newscaster, Dan Harris, who at one moment could no longer perform on air for an unknown reason. His anxiety led to an inability to complete a task he was gifted at. Now I have neither spoken to nor know him, but I surmise from my experiences in medicine that he began to fear failure and the negative cycle of thought grew into a paralyzing reality. In my experience, the best cure for this dilemma is getting back on the horse and repeating the process until fear abates. This may not be possible for a news anchor with a live show or an airline pilot flying high in the sky, but what is possible is love and support from family and friends while the individual is focusing on saying no to delusions, fears, negative thought in order to get the ship righted. This process will likely be highly augmented now through the modern pathways of psychotropic medication, thought dissociation. And finally, if you're interested, there is a fantastic recipe um, for black beans uh, that my wife has. It is on the newsletter, and you can get it through docsmo.com or salisburypediatrics.com. Okay, that concludes issue number 40. Now moving on to number 42. In number 42, we're going to talk about stress, psychiatry, and the intestinal microbiome. This is all in concert with a few upcoming podcasts that could take a deep dive looking at the gut health space uh, that will launch in the coming weeks. So humans develop disease from many different routes, including toxic exposures, genetics, poor nutrition, 
injury, microbial exposures, and much more. One of the biggest risk factors for the development of disease is mental stress. Specifically, chronic stress of the psyche is traumatic to the cellular machinery of the body like the protective telomere tails of DNA strands or the functioning intestinal microbiome. What I find fascinating is that stress, the brain, and the microbiome are all intimately linked. In this article, we're going to look at this association and what we can do positively to support it. The gut is often called the second brain, and that is not by accident as there is a large network of nerves throughout our gut called the enteric nervous system. This is thought to be why we can have a gut reaction. Roughly 80 to 90% of the body's supply of the neurotransmitter serotonin resides in the gut. The functions of serotonin include regulating mood, sleep, appetite, gut motility, and various cognitive functions. Why would such an important neurotransmitter be concentrated in the gut? My medical school professors taught me to believe that the intestine is a place of digestion and assimilation, not thinking and feeling. Turns out, the fields of neurology, epigenetics, and microbiology are working together to answer this question and change the narrative. What we know to be true is that there is a bi-directional flow of communication that uses neural, hormonal, and immune routes to achieve the goal of bridging the worlds of the brain, our bacterial friends, and the rest of our sensing and feeling body. This is called the gut-brain axis. What is even more astounding is that the microbes that reside in our intestines have direct and profound effects on how our brain works. Evidence continues to accumulate that bacteria and viruses that live within us have elegant ways of hijacking our neurologic system and changing who we are and how we feel. Whether it's autism spectrum disorders, anxiety, depression, or chronic pain, a significant portion of the cause can now be attributed to the gut microbiome. I am a believer that the autism spectrum disorders, in part, will be shown to be a result of insults to the maternal fetus dyad via epigenetic alterations, autoimmunity, and microbial imbalances in the gut and the brain. To keep this clear of the leap of faith world, let us look at a few studies. In 2017, Dr. Sang Du Kim and her team showed that mice with abnormal bacterial signatures in their intestinal microbiome birth offspring with autism-like features. This effect could be prevented by treating the animals with antibiotics and killing these pathogenic bacterial species. This is important, as we will discuss in upcoming podcasts, because of the fact that the microbiome of a newborn reflects the mother in the first trimester of pregnancy first trimester of pregnancy that comes from Omri Korn's work in 2012. Thus, if a mother's intestinal microbiome is dysfunctional, preconception, then the child will follow suit based on the science. The microbes that colonize the newborn's intestinal tract could and likely are dysfunctional in many children prone to neurologic disease. Which is the chicken, which is the egg remains to be seen. Further studies have shown that the restoration of the intestinal microbiome via probiotic therapy or fecal transplantation can ameliorate the anxiety burden. Collins and colleagues showed that anxiety could be induced by transplanting the bacteria from an anxious mouse to a happy mouse. The strain of probiotic known as lactobacillus, which is commonly found in over-the-counter probiotics, can increase the receptor for GABA, a calming neurotransmitter, which in turn reduces anxiety and depressive-type behaviors. In an upcoming podcast with Dr. Tracy Shafazada, we discuss the product of EVO, a probiotic based on the specific Bifidobacter infantis subspecies that has 19 genes to digest all of mom's human milk oligosaccharides, or sugars, in her breast milk to help establish a normal and functional microbiome of the infant. When a mother and her newborn are missing this bacteria, then the child cannot adequately digest 15% of mother's milk. 
The real issue at play here is that the digestion of the HMOs causes a metabolic effect locally, feeding the infant's gut cells called enterocytes and ultimately polarizing the neonatal immune system to natural tolerance of foods and substances while remaining vigilant to pathogens. Their scientific discovery is excellent. The reason that I raise this topic here is that I think that we will learn that these missing microbes coupled to standard American-style diets are driving this neurological phenotype in mothers and their children. Okay, moving on. There is a large body of evidence that chronic stress can alter the microbes in the gut, disrupt the intestinal barrier leading to food reactions, increased immune activation, and changes in our behavior. All right, let me pause here to recap some of the hard science. We have a clear picture that the world of psychiatry and neurology used to be believed that depression, anxiety, and other neural neurobehavioral disorders were hardwired genetic defects or broken brain chemistry. This could not be farther from the truth. The intestinal microbiome and the bacteria within play a large role in human mental health. The scientific evidence is clear that we need to prevent damage to the microbiome and stop altering the bacteria within negatively. What I know to be true now is that psychiatric and neurobehavioral disorders are not the effects of broken brains in the vast majority of cases. They are not the effects of choice for many people in the beginning of the disease genesis. They are not hardwired and permanent. Even poorly treated and previously thought irreversible disease like Alzheimer's disease are not so if caught early enough before massive tissue damage occurs. The groundbreaking scientific work of Dr. Moshe Schiff, Dale Bredesen, and Terry Walls have opened a locked door to the world of hope and understanding for resolution of devastation to the brain. What these pioneers are doing is rewriting medicine by not accepting the current dogma or status of disease etiology and instead starting from the roots of the tree to find the breakpoint that begin the disease. They are working on patient microbiomes through diet alterations, working on brain pathways through epigenetics via stress reduction training and so much more. How does mental stress play into this reality? Most forms of stress in the acute phase are often life-extending as they elaborate cassettes of genes in our DNA that are hanging out in order to come to play when life gets difficult. I think of temperature shock protein genes here. They are there to help preserve our species and help us procreate, our two main driving forces of existence. Where stress becomes an issue is in the chronic unremitting state. Study after study has shown that this persistence of stress breaks down all levels of neural, hormonal, and immunological communication pathways. We all know this to be true, as we often get ill with infectious organisms following a prolonged stressful event. If we accept that the microbiome is affected by stress and the microbiome in turn affects our mood and cognition, then it behooves us to pay particular attention to what disturbs the microbiome and thus our psyche as well. Here I think of perception of events versus the reality of an event. Perception can drive a negative state of physiologic function that then feeds forward into the disease feeling further, reinforcing a loop of negativity. The podcast released a few weeks ago with Dr. David Rakel, podcast number six, is exactly the kind of education that we all need. We need to understand that we have choices, we have routes to health and healing, and we have the ability to change our perception of anything. Give the podcast a listen as he is an amazing teacher. 
As always, I have a roadmap below that you can find on the newsletter that many of you have seen many times. I repeat it over and over again for all the new readers and learners. However, how does a young person, mother, mother's future offspring, protect their microbiome from perturbation and disease while maintaining a healthy mind? So I have a list. One, critical. Avoid all antibiotics, antacids, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs where possible before becoming pregnant and during pregnancy as well. These drugs and many others adversely affect the healthy microbiome. Two, critical. Eat a predominantly plant-based whole foods diet like Dr. Weil's anti-inflammatory diet. This means shunning floury and sugary white foods. Fermented foods like kefir, kimchi, kombucha, yogurt, and sauerkraut are direct bacterial sources for the gut. Avoid all refined and processed foods that are low in fiber, high in bad fats, and sugar bombs. Three, avoid non-nutritive sweeteners like saccharin, aspartame, and sucralose, which promote the growth of unhealthy bacteria. Four, avoid endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs. See the newsletter on EDCs on the website. You can also visit www.ewg.org for lists of chemicals to avoid. I encourage you to go old school with plain soap and vinegar as disinfectants. Targeted bleach can be used on raw animal residue on countertops in kitchen if needed. Five, consider taking high quality probiotics in the range of 100 billion bugs, only with the advice of your provider though, to find the type and need for you. If you have a newborn, look into Avivo, this new probiotic that we're gonna be discussing. Six, Eat local organic foods until we have definitive proof that Roundup, glyphosate, and other chemicals in our food supply are truly safe. The early research on these chemicals in the microbiome are not encouraging. Seven, critical. Meditate and reduce stress daily. Get into a rhythm of daily gratitude and prayer to engender a mindset of happiness no matter where you find yourself and how much external stress is pushing on you. Avoid negative negativity in all its forms. Negative mindsets only promote stress and stagnation of spirit. Eight, consider an elimination diet if you're suffering from chronic fatigue, glut bloating, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic headaches, or other somatic symptoms of food reactivity. Removing trigger foods can stop food gut-induced inflammation that can damage the microbiome. Trials of one to two months off offending foods often answers the question for you as your body will feel dramatically different if you have a food sensitivity. Eliminating gluten, dairy, corn, eggs, soy, tree nuts, peanuts, and shellfish accounts for most food reactions that are not anaphylactic and classified as allergy sensitivity. Never try elimination rechallenge diets with foods that cause anaphylactic symptoms like vomiting, wheezing, oral swelling, loss of blood pressure, etc. You can see uh, internet-based websites to look up what anaphylactic risk symptoms and triggers are. Nine. Consider taking a prebiotic supplement to enhance the growth of the good bacteria that you already have. Great in smoothies and cold beverages. I love Bob's Red Mill, unmodified food, potato starch, an excellent resistant starch prebiotic. 10. Exercise daily to sweat. Enhances microbial quality and helps body get rid of toxins. 11. If you're really struggling with gut health, despite trying all the above recommendations, find a functional integrative medicine or gastroenterologist practitioner trained in understanding how the gut microbiome and foods may be affecting your overall health. You may need to paradoxically treat some dysfunctional bacteria or yeast in your intestines. Treatments for these problems all vary and are very specific and complicated and must be individualized for the person. 12. 
Get adequate sleep to reduce stress. 13. Aim for a vaginal delivery every time. No scheduled cesarean sections unless medically indicated. 14. Breastfeed exclusively until six months. I recommend whole foods for your baby from six months on. No white refined foods. 15. Finally, anything that you perceive as chronic stress is a real stressor for you. You must change the narrative in your mind that is a problem. Accept the current reality until you can remove yourself from the stressor or mitigate it somehow. Jesus Christ and the philosopher Stoics understood this philosophy well. Turning the other cheek, forgiveness, boundaries, standing strong in the storm, whatever you want to call it, will help you maintain a reduced stress life. We will always have stress. Our perception and reaction to the stress dictates our physiologic outcome. Okay, section two. A new and interesting book is out. How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. Catchy subject. Catchy title. Raising kids is a mix of art and science and likely always will be. In this new book, Melinda Moyer looks at the science of the side of the equation. The author writes, One of the core questions I had was, How do I raise my kids to be generous and kind? A lot of what we hear is about the importance of teaching, giving, and generosity. But the research I kept coming across stemmed from how we talk about feelings. That's surprising. Why would that have anything to do with how generous children would become? It became clear that helping our kids understand their feelings gives them the capacity to understand others' feelings and be more generous toward them. This is part of something called theory of mind, how to understand others' feelings. Research suggests that more parents talk about their feelings and other people's, the more kids are likely to be generous and helpful. End quote. I'm going to distill this book down for you over the next few months and also do a book review with Doc Smo in a few months or so. So stay tuned. Section three. As I was sitting outside in the back porch thinking this morning, I came across a memory that meant a lot to me and also predicts a child's outcome to some extent. I once told the story of my childhood musical decision in third grade. My parents ushered me into a large gymnasium at Hagen Elementary School in Poughkeepsie, New York. The gym was littered with every instrument from the ukulele at one end to the xylophone at the other. When my siblings made the same walk of choice, they chose the violin and the flute respectively. Then there was little old scrawny eight-year-old me. I passed with a huge smile on my face every instrument. This one, my father would say. How about this one, said my mother. Nope. I walked and walked until I stood in front of my idolized snare drum. While I cannot imagine what my parents were thinking, their faces did not utter disapproval, they were probably thinking, please, Lord, no, not this loud monster of an instrument. Intrinsically, they probably knew that this was going to happen because it fit my personality. So for the next many years, I lugged that heavy case with my orange glittery snare drum in it. It was a burden for me to carry as I was really scrawny. However, desire really trumps any limitation on size and strength. My music teachers taught me the boring, painful basics of the flam paradiddle and the drum roll. I practiced at home and my parents never complained. I guarantee that it was not fun to hear. Think about the, pers- the parenting message here. Fantastic. Son, do what you do. We support you. Years went by and I took up a full set. And still, they said, go for it. Now we have cymbals and three more drums. Racket was my middle name. 
By ninth grade, for various reasons, mostly teacher-related, I learned to not enjoy school music lessons anymore, shifting my life to self-learning harder, but more rewarding. And yet, my parents watched. Years have passed, and believe it or not, I still play with a smile on my face thinking of that little scrawny kid allowed to carry a heavy drum by himself onto a bus to achieve a goal self-derived. For me, this personal story illustrates the gift of parental support for a self-derived decision despite the parental sacrifice of peace and quiet. Furthermore, there was no mention of my ability or lack thereof to carry said snare drum to school and from school. It is an amazing gift to let a child derive their own path to success. When your child asks for something that is not aligned with your sense of whatever it is you believe, remember that support and allowing independence is critical to success and follow through. The choice, project, won't always make it to the end of the line, but it will always have a chance to do so. And frankly, isn't that enough? Okay, that's the end of episodes number 40 and 42. So let's do the obligatory disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professionals not to be used to diagnose or treat any health issue and does not constitute the for- formation of a provider-patient relationship. So with that, I will leave you. I hope you enjoyed this version of the audio cast newsletter. Uh, this is volume 11, issues number 40 and 42. Have a great day, and remember to hug those kids.